Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, we'll man to you the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is May 3rd, 2013. This is episode uh, 1,123 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got, oh well, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Voice is still on the mend, but it's a lot better than it was uh I, uh, I'll do my best for you guys today, but I can only, uh, push it so hard. Hopefully by, uh, by the end of the, by the beginning of next week, we'll, uh, we'll be in full recovery. But, uh, I am going to a concert. It's something I don't do a lot of. I'm going to a concert Saturday night with my wife. I'm pretty stoked about it. It's, uh, my favorite musician of all time up in Frisco, Texas, Mr. Jimmy Buffett. And, uh, my wife really likes him, but she actually is like really, uh, stoked about the fact that Jackson Brown's opening for Jimmy. So, uh, that's what I've got. Non-survivalist, non-self-sufficiency. Just take a freaking break, uh, weekend coming up and getting away with the wife. So that should be, uh, fun. But I am going to answer your calls today. I've got like 13 or 14 of them lined up. So as usual, this will probably be a bit of a longer show. And again, I apologize for any of the uh, strained voice along the way. Uh, before I get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production, the awesome Marjorie Wildcraft that will teach you to turn your backyard into a food production machine. That's what they've done, and they'll help you do that, too. Get on over to their website, uh, backyardfoodproduction.com or growingyourgroceries.com. They actually changed the name on it, but both of them will take you to the same place, and both of them will get you the same same DVD series. And when you get that in your hands, then you'll be able to learn how to do exactly that. Turn your backyard into a food production machine. Everything from vegetables, carbohydrate crops, meat crops, protein, things like eggs, uh, fertility issues, butchering, you name it, it's there. How they've done it themselves and produce the majority of the food that they consume on their own property. Again, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, I, I just had Bulk Ammo as a sponsor uh, yesterday. And I said there's a trifecta to being a gun owner. There's a good quality gun. you got to have that. Then there's the ammo to go with it. And the third, then the linchpin that puts the two together and makes them valid is a well-trained gun operator. And if you want to be that well-trained operator, you need professional training, the kind that you'll get at Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre are not just great instructors. They're perpetual students. They all take additional training classes every year over and over and always continue to do so to provide the best, safest, and, and most uh, real-life training experience that you can get from beginner to advanced courses and everything else in between. And they even have medical courses because if you're going to carry something around that's lethal and you're ever in a confrontation, it's a good chance that somebody's going to be wounded wounded, uh, and somebody might need medical care. So along with the ability to do harm, to me comes the responsibility to know how to heal. Uh, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean the bad guy, but uh, usually if you're required to use deadly force in, a, in those situations, many times somebody else has already been harmed. You may also find yourself in a situation where you never have to do it uh, because somebody else took care of it or the shooter took off or whatever. But part of the responsibility of the armed citizen is also to be able to help his fellow citizens. And one way we do that is by saving lives. And we often hear, you know, in this shooting, how many more lives could have been saved if there was an armed citizen there? 
Valid point. My next question, though, is, well, how many other lives might have been saved if there were people that knew what to do uh, to keep people alive long enough for the first responders to get there to give them more professional aid? You'll get both sides of that with Fortress Defense Consultants. And remember, if you can't travel to Frank, he can actually put together training and bring the training to you. Why not get together 10, 12 guys? or 12, 10, 12 people, because guys and gals both, and uh, get in touch with Frank and have him bring a, a mobile training to you. Tell them exactly what you want. They can either do one of their trainings, specifically the courses that they have listed on their sites, or if you have something specific you're looking for, they can adapt a training to your needs. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show. At a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty and prior service. If you email me before, not after you join, put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. I'll send you a discount code that will thank you for your service. It'll save you even more money uh, on your membership, and that discount applies to recurring. Where Usually if I run a sale... It's just your first year. With the military service discount, it applies to your first year, your second year. You can use it on monthly. You can use it quarterly. You can use it however you want your frequency to be, uh, and it's a pretty good discount. I also give that discount to first responders like firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, folks like that. So, again, the way you claim that service discount in the subject line, uh, a couple sentences about what you're doing or what you did if you're prior service, Email to get in touch with me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. For all needs, for all needs, that is the best way to get a hold of me. If you send me a message on LinkedIn or Facebook or something like that, you're going to probably not hear back from me. You might, but you're rolling the dice. I don't answer all email. I can't, but I do read all email. Uh, the formula to try to get information to me is put for Jack in it. If you put question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, uh, it gets into a priority queue that I push out of my spam folder, and you're even more likely to have me at least read your email, even if I don't respond to it. With that wrapped up, I want to go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Take your calls. I want to do a special announcement. I put out a blog post this morning, and uh, I want to make sure that everybody gets this. Uh, I have been working with Jeff Lott, and that's no secret, uh, on his new initiative. And he's been putting out a tremendous number of free videos. And I've stated that he's going to you know, actually come out and sell some at some point. Well, because we all have to pay our bills, and you can't do all of this stuff for free and keep doing it. I mean, it's just doesn't work. You know, most people understand that you couldn't go to work every day if you didn't get a paycheck at the end of the week. So what Jeff's coming out with is an online permaculture design course. Uh, he has told me and he's promised me it will be the best one that he has ever done. And uh, there'll be a lot of bonuses with it, and it won't be cheap. It's, it's not cheap. Uh, a PDC, when you go to one, especially one that's given by Jeff, who's like, that's, you know, there's a difference between getting a PDC from someone uh, who's who's good at it and then getting it from the master. So getting it from Jeff is like, you know, learning math from Einstein, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, na- neighborhood of $2,000, $2,200. He does them all over the world. Places like, you know, places that people go to vacation, like Madrid and, and Spain and stuff like that. Um, this is not going to be anywhere near that much, but it's not going to be cheap. I have negotiated with Jeff a big discount. I mean a big discount. It's actually, when he came to me originally, he said, I'll give you a referral fee for all the people you refer to it. I said, I don't want it. I want a discount for my members. And uh, he was willing to actually increase that percentage as a discount versus what I, so I gave up the referral fee to get it for my members. The only reason I'm bringing that out right now is this is going to be released today. 
Most of you are on our email list from Jeff now where he's going to say, hey, it's available. I do not want you to sign up without getting your discount if you are an MSB member. And many of you who want this course that aren't MSB members are probably going to sign up for the MSB just for the discount, and that's okay. Um, it's a significant discount. It is not, you know, a token 3% or something like that. Um, it, it is, uh, it would be if you were joined the, the, the MSB for a year, uh, and then go use the discount right after you did that, it would be immediately profitable. Just to give you an idea, I'm not going to release it, uh, you know, in advance as to what the discount actually is because, well, it would go into pricing and everything, and they're controlling that. They're controlling when that information comes out, and I'm not going to jump the gun on them. I just don't want anybody to jump the gun on this. I know I'm running workshops and stuff. I got Monday, I'm going to actually have the date set for the contour wood beds, the little one I'm doing myself. It's probably going to be, I'll tell you now, so you can start planning if you're, if you're on the list for it. Um, it's probably going to be the 24th and 25th of May, Friday and Saturday, uh, with, with, uh, a little bit of hanging out on Sunday for those that maybe stay here locally. Um, so that's probably what it's going to be. I have to confirm with the equipment operator this afternoon. As soon as I know, I'll, uh, I'll start with the people that already asked and, uh, we'll, we're going to take about 20 to that one. I want you guys to remember that won't be the last one, but that's, you know, a limited head count. Jeff coming here for an earthworks workshop next spring. Uh, limited head count. If we do some sort of a micro PDC or something, limited head count. What Jeff's doing now, this online PDC does have a limited number of people they're going to take for it. Um, but I think it's going to be a hell of a lot more than 20. I, I think that's because, and I don't have all the details yet. I think this is going to be, um, real time and available for review. So if you miss a session, you can watch it then, but you're going to have access to Jeff in real time summer. I think that you, you'll get the full details when this comes out. The big thing I want you to do, though, is I already have everything set up so that the second that this thing goes live, it will be in the MSB. The discount will be in the MSB, and you can claim the discount through the MSB. You'll go to your benefits section, click on benefits. It'll be the first thing listed. I'll put it at the top of the page. You can click on it and get a special link to sign up and use that. I don't want you to not receive your discount because I worked hard to make sure you guys would have a really good discount on this. I've been asked, like, because I, I, I misunderstood this. I, I just misunderstood this. I thought this would be completely wide open. Um, but, you know, is it just going to be one, and how is it going to be in the future? And are, I, I don't know yet. I mean, I, I'll ask Jeff to explain all of this um, when I have him on the show, and he'll be on the show either Monday or Tuesday next week, most likely. Um, but when the thing becomes live... If you want to take it and you want to take this first round, I'd go ahead and sign up, but get into the MSB and get your discount first because it's, it's, it's significant. That, that's all I wanted to say on that. I don't want to spend too much time on it. I just didn't want anybody not getting, uh, their discounted membership. And I did put out a post saying there wasn't a limit on it. And I immediately corrected it when, uh, when Jeb's web team got in touch with me and said there is. And, and I don't have all the answers as far as how that works or why there's a limit yet. But it might be it's the first time they're doing it, and they want to make sure that they can handle as many people as they take. And they, because I know that's on my workshops, that's part of what I'm doing. Like, how many people can I handle and make sure that everybody gets treated, you know, with everything they deserve for what they're spending? And that's probably something to do with it. But, I'll, you know, I'm sure more details will come out when it's released, and I'm sure Jeff will give us as much detail as we want on that uh, when he's on the show. I also do want to let you guys know that yesterday, I went down to the Mulligan Mint. Uh, I took a camera. I knocked on the door, and uh, you know, the people are like looked out, like, "What are you doing?" And I 
he said, I'm here for Rob. So they went to get Rob. So when they went to get Rob, I turned the camera on. And I mean, he's a friend at all. It was maybe a little bit, I don't know, uh, I don't know, a little bit, uh, it, it, I, I don't know. He took it well. But, I mean, basically he opened the door, and I thought, I think he thought I was going to come down there and, like, talk to him about it all and, and then video the stuff. And it was like, yeah, just show me what's going on, you know, because people want to know. And I wanted to make sure that the quality concerns that I had, the shipping concerns that I had, all that stuff had been addressed because we're about to release like this awesome new coin with the Sentinel on it and uh, a limited edition run of only a thousand of a special coin uh, that more info will be coming out on. And then the, the main run of, of the, the Sentinel coin and then a limited edition of, uh, of a proof of the new Sentinel coin, the, the actual coin. Uh, it's three different coins. Just, I'll let it go. I, but before we did all this, I wanted to be sure that we got things squared away down there. And I'm pretty convinced they have. I've got the video uh, uploading to YouTube right now. It's like in three parts. It's pretty long. I'm going to have to piece it all together. It'll probably come out later this afternoon. Uh, but that'll be up for you. And you can see the whole mint end to end, how they're, uh, they're casting their own silver, all of that stuff. And I can tell you now, uh, I'm a, you know, I, I've always been, uh, sure on Rob as a man, but operationally we all have our limits. I think they've invested Massive amounts of money, massive amounts of effort, and massive amounts into manpower, and uh, they're ready now to roll and and roll uh, heavy. Uh, they're only taking payments by check. Uh, they're taking about 14 days to ship, uh, but it takes 10 days before your check clears. So, I mean, that works out to where you're looking at your money's gone for four days for your stuff's in the mail and on the way to you with tracking number. Uh, I think that's pretty good, uh, given the, uh, the challenges of growth that they've had. Anyway, I'll put that video out for you guys today. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, finally get around to it and take your first call. Hi, Jack. This is Brad from Nebraska. I have a question about the direction of contour beds. And if I choose to go with a true hookah culture bed, my contour runs on my property from northeast to southwest. If I build too tall of a hoogle bed, is that going to shade it too much on the north north slope of the hoogle bed? I guess what is the determination or what uh, what vegetables grow well in less than ideal sunlight conditions? Thanks. Oh, it's interesting. My uh, my beds go from northeast to southwest, and the uh, the answer in my circumstance, because the beds are a full three and a half feet apart uh, with pathways in between them, uh, and they're only about 24 to 30 inches high at the center, and they're kind of flat-topped, rounded edges, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's more about what you plant in them, shading out other plants, than it is about um, the, the beds themselves. Now, if you build a 70-degree angle, one-and-a-half to two-meter high Sepp Holzer-style hugel bed, um, you would get a significant kind of shaded-out area, specifically uh, in that northwestern uh, end uh, of the bed. And it would only get a limited amount of sun in the summer, and it might get little to none um, in, the, in the winter months. Whether you're growing or not is whether or not that's going to matter. Well, how do you make that determination? Well, what are you building? Where are you at? And, and this is the key, right? I worry sometimes that I talk too much about contour because not everything has to be on contour. And you have to take the design element, a hugel bed, a contour bed, whatever you're doing, and you have to, you have to design that into the landscape based on what's most necessary given the climate, uh, the landscape profile, 
uh, prevailing winds, solar aspect, all of these things need to be considered. So it really the answer is, like most things, is it depends, and on some levels it doesn't matter. If you're building low contour beds, um, you're not going to have that that shaded of an area, and you'll find that certain things will do better in shade. And I don't mean full shade, but some shade. Your squashes will do fine there, and they'll vine and crawl and find somewhere and as they need it. Beans actually do okay with some partial shade during the day. You'll find that as long as you're not building a sepulcher bed, um, that you're going to get sun for at least you know six hours or more just about anywhere on that bed, especially in Oklahoma in a somewhat southern climate, and even up north. So it's not that big a deal. Again, if you're building these larger beds, you can shade areas out. But SEP doesn't build those beds on contour. In fact, he says don't do it. And the reason he says don't do it is he's in a much more of an alpine setting, and you can actually dry out lower beds, according to him anyway. Now, I have some ways that... You actually mitigate that. It doesn't happen. But remember, he's also trying to keep the side of a mountain from not falling down. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, the landscape profile where he's perfected his techniques, um, that's that's a legitimate concern. You put enough stuff on contour and hold enough water in on a steep enough slope in a fragile environment like the Austrian Alps, and you can create a mudslide. So there's always differences. And, and the problem is that a designer... At the level of a of a, of a Sepp Holzer, is going to be married to his ideas, and he's going to take that marriage to his ideas, and he's going to take it everywhere he goes, and he's going to say, "You don't do this." Well, maybe you do if you're not sitting on a freaking 20 degree slope, you know, with a terrace. Maybe you do. I, you know, it all depends. But I think that the big thing is if you're building a big hugel bed, one and a half to two meters high, 70 degree angles traditional Holzer-style raised bed, you don't need to worry about being on contour. You don't even need to think about it other than you don't want to be so off contour that you end up with a bed that's like going up and down a hill long ways because that's going to create its own unique challenges. So you need a relatively level area, but you don't need to be on contour. And generally, the way he builds his bed is they're not just long and straight. They make kind of this S-winding as they go along, and that creates additional shade and heat and microclimates and wind channeling, and they kind of work together in a total system. So the, the answer is it depends on what you're doing and what kind of bed you're making. Um, and you always have to design to the needs that you have as a producer uh, and to the, to the unique characteristics of your landscape, not to try to just emulate 100% what I'm doing or Jeff's doing or Seb's doing or anybody else is doing. At some point, you kind of have to, you know, think for yourself and decide what makes the most sense for you. It, you know, how steep is your slope? Uh, you know, because you could go into a fairly steep slope or even a moderate slope, and you could terrace it, and you could put your beds on that terrace, and they would kind of be on contour on the terrace, but not on contour on the land, because the terrace is man creating his own new contour, and then you could angle those. But I mean. The thing is, let's say that you orientated your beds north to south. Well, you're going to get nailed 100% heavy sun on the east side, right? Which is going to be your gentler sun overhead for a while. And then when it goes off to the west, your west side of that mountain is going to take much harsher sun. There's always going to be in a situation, uh, microclimates and different uh, different levels of solar intensity and solar exposure. 
So the best thing that we can do is polyculture. So we plant a ton of crap on everywhere, same stuff all over the place. And then in that first season, we watch and go, well, the beans did really good here. So this is an area for me that I'm going to focus on a little bit more beans in my polyculture. And the corn did really good here, so I'm going to put the corn here. And the squash did really good here, so I'm going to put the squash. And not necessarily in the same spot, but in the same type of spot. The same uh, aspect, ratio, wind uh, absorption, all of those things take into account. So in essence, by planting a lot of different things and observing in the first season, Do you get the answer from your own property? But you can put all those other things into your planning that I talked about at the beginning of this response. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Gail from over at youcanhomestead.com. And I just had a question about your uh, how you learn permaculture. Did you take a course? I'm looking for an online course with maybe some weekend hands-on, or did you just learn on your own? Uh, thanks for all your shows. All your podcast and all your videos, I really appreciate those. I've learned a lot, and I actually started my own little podcast because of you and your uh, five minutes with Jack. So thanks, and uh, I hope to get an answer on this. Bye bye. All right, so this is a great question, and it's one that's going to tweak some people off. And I I'm sorry if I'm asked a question, I'm going to give my honest to God opinion. The reality is that permaculture as a term and as a discipline was founded by the Permaculture Research Institute, uh, Tagari, uh, Bill Mollison in Australia. And if it's, if it's not rooted there, it, it's not really rooted in the discipline that, that is behind a certification as a PDC or permaculture design certification course. It's just not. Um, that's that's the original. There are people in this country and in other parts of the world that are actively uh, advertising that they're teaching a PDC, a permaculture design course, that are not officially sanctioned to do so by uh, the PRI and 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 Tagari. And to me, they're doing a disservice to the movement. If they want to say they're teaching permaculture, that's fine. But a design course has certain criteria. Uh, that should be covered, like landscape profiles. And it should not be specific to urban or specific to a region or specific to anything. It should be a, a course where once you've completed it, you understand how to analyze zone and sector analysis and, 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 and how to do earthworks. And how, you know, that doesn't mean you can jump on a machine and do it. But you should be able, after a PDC, go look at a location and say, well, we can put a dam there and a swale there. We can level that. And you should be able to bring in a contractor that maybe has never done it quite the permaculture way before. But with your direction and their knowledge, you should be able to get that done. And you might want to start on a smaller uh, project when you go into actively doing these things. And you may never want to do that, but you should be able to. The experience comes after during and before, and a permaculture PDC course is generally not one where you spend a lot of time planning things, right? It's very much an academic thing with a project at the end of your own design uh, that could be implemented or not implemented, but it's, it's you have to provide a design and show that you've learned how to actually design. That's a PDC. 
I would ask questions of somebody that's advertising, not a permaculture course, right? You want to say it's a permaculture course if you're caring for the earth, caring for people, returning surplus, and taking responsibility for yourself, as far as I'm concerned, permaculture. But if you want to say it's a design certification, I might ask questions like, do you cover landscape profiles? Um, are you are you approved by the PRI and Tagari? Uh, to to issue certifications. And they might say, well, we don't have to be. That would be, well, no, you're not. Okay? Um, what additional uh, have you, what additionally have you gone through beyond a PDC? Because a PDC doesn't qualify you to do PDCs, right? There's additional education required. So what have you done beyond taking a PDC yourself to be qualified to teach a PDC? Um, these types of things. What is a SIL? If I was going to take a, uh, a PDC course from somebody and I said, what is a SIL? And they said, I don't know, or it's a thing on a window. I would say, I don't want to take a PDC with that person. I might want to learn from them. I don't take, don't get, don't get me wrong here. I, I might want to learn from them. I might have a lot that I can learn. They might have a course that's specific to my region and selecting guilds and things like, and that's fine, but I would not take a PDC. A PDC is not about what you plant, it's how you design. And it, it really, I know people struggle with this, but it really doesn't matter where you are. Because once you understand the structure of the design, you should be able to design in an arid climate, in a humid climate, in a tropic climate. Well, that tree doesn't grow here, so put something else in there. So from a P, from a design course, that's what I'm looking for. And, you know, I, this just dovetails right into the fact that Jeff's releasing one that's 100% online today, uh, and you can take that, and you do the design work on your end, and if you publish that design, you get your certification. That's awesome, and I, I don't see any reason that that cannot work uh, for anybody that wants to have their time freedom and be able to do this uh, as well. Uh, how did I learn? I've, I've taken a PDC. I've, I've actually been to a couple of other courses, uh, including some PDCs where I've lectured. Um, I have gone through the entire PDC as delivered by uh, Jeff and Bill, Bill Mollison, the founder. Uh, that was about a $400 DVD set that I purchased and went through. Uh, I have written, I've read every single thing that has been put out by Bill, including a 144-page uh, transcript of Bill's lectures at Barking Frog Permaculture in Florida from the 80s. I've watched every video and DVD I get, I ha uh, get my hands on, and I've gotten out and done the work. I've gotten out and done the work um, and actually proven what works and what doesn't in my climate for me. And I think that one of the more important things that I do is that when I'm driving down the road and I look at a median, I say, how would I design that? Like a big steep hill median between the divided highway. If the state of Texas came to me and said, Jack, we're going to give you that space. Go design it. How would you design that? And I try to look at every piece of landscape that I see, a neighbor's landscape, whatever, with a designer's eye. How would I design that? And I'm constantly challenging myself. And once you understand design, what you need to understand is, yeah, implementation of design costs money. Development of design only takes intellectual capital. It takes your mind. It takes time. And it takes putting it down on paper if you want to put it down on paper. So you can design a thousand properties and never implement one. I'm not saying you should do that. You should implement some, but I'm saying designing the properties has value too. 
just sketching it out, saying, well, I'd put this tree here, that tree there, I'd put a swale in there. Where is the contour on that piece of property? And estimating it. If you went in and actually implemented the design, you would find that the contour would diverge from where you, your eyes tell you it is. But the basics would be the same. So I think it's a combination of independent research, independent learning, taking a good design course, taking other courses that are, take these other courses that are specific. Now, with all of that said, Let's say you're saying, look, I don't want, I don't care if I'm certified. I don't give a damn. I don't want to do this for a business. I don't want to, you know, say I'm officially a permaculture uh, consultant and, and have that as something I'd put on a business card or on a business name uh, and, and use it with, you know, solid ethics that I've done what's required to be able to do that. I just want to know how to transform my backyard and maybe my neighbors or my daughters or my sons or my dads or my moms. And that's all I want to do. There are a lot of people out there that are doing courses on permaculture, that really know what they're doing at that level. They can't teach a design course, even though some of them may call it that, because they couldn't tell you how to design uh, in, in, in northwestern Arizona, right? Only Florida. But that's fine for you. And I would have no problem taking classes like that from somebody uh, and getting involved with that. In fact, I'm going to a meetup in Keller on uh, on Tuesday night on developing food forests for the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I think it's incredibly valuable that there's a free meetup to go do that. Check meetup for things like that as well. Talk to people. Look at what people are already doing. But if you want a design certification, if it's not rooted in in the, the complete PDC as developed by Bill, uh, Bill Mollison, it's not a PDC. Somebody might call it that, and nobody's going to arrest them or sue them over it, and you could go do it and get your certification and probably say, I'm certified, and nobody's going to come sue you over it, but it's not real. It's a phantom. If it's real, you'd be able to look at mountains at the end of a PDC. You should be able to look at the, the shape of a mountain and describe the landscape profile, and that should be the only thing you would need to see Unless somebody's altered them with machinery, if you look at a natural profile of a mountain, you should be able to say, this is the landscape profile. And it's not that hard. You should be able to look at a tree. Just look at a tree and say, here's the dominant wind direction. Even if it's not really obvious. You should be able to look at weeds in a field and you should be able to go out and maybe, if you don't recognize their type, Just pull a few weeds up and look at the root structure and describe what that field is like as far as whether the soil is compacted or loose. These are things that you get from a PDC. And only a real PDC gives you all those things. And again, for some people that's not important, but if that's what you're looking for, then I'm not saying you need to do Jeff's. I'm saying you couldn't do better, but I'm saying you go with a teacher who's, who's certified by the PRI to be claiming that they're doing a PDC. And if they don't have that, you know, who approved you to teach this course? I did myself. I'm sorry. There might be a ton to learn from that person, but I wouldn't probably consider it a valid certification. And I know I've hacked some people off, even some people I know and like, but that's just how I personally feel. Uh, and I think a lot of those folks would do well to just stop doing PDCs. Just, you know, don't call it a PDC. Call it what it is, a permaculture workshop on A, B, C, and D. And I think there's a lot of business to be had like that. There might be more business to be had like that than there is people that want PDCs. Because PDC is something you do once. You don't have to do it again. 
If you have to do it again, it wasn't done right the first time. But just like we talked about doing the specialized, small-scale design with Jeff when he comes, that's that's really hot with people. They want it. So I think that if you're mad at me because you're in the business and you're issuing certs and you don't have any relationship back to the mothership, so to speak, with any, like, Uh, approval to be doing that, yeah, no one's going to stop you from doing it, but not only are you, do I feel you're doing a disservice to permaculture because you're not teaching people. Do you have certified, you know, quote unquote certified people that don't know landscape profiles or don't know what a sill is, right? It, it, it just, it, it devalues the, the concept because you should know that, right? How to, how to do sector analysis. Not just zoning, but sector analysis, overlays. If you don't know these things, then you're not a certified permaculturist, in my view. But you might have ton, you might be able to run a lot more workshops every year and make a lot more money teaching things specific to your environment as a student. Then it's up to you to decide what's most important to you. And you might want to get your feet wet with a with a you know a five day workshop that's something very specific to your area and just start doing it. Anyway, I went really long on that. I'm sorry because sometimes it bugs me when I when I hear people say they're certified and I start talking about their PDC and I, I, I learn that they really don't have any idea about some of the most critical elements uh, that make a PDC global. I mean, that that's what it really comes down to. Once you have that certification, you should be able to go anywhere in the world. And as far as what goes there, you can talk to local people about what grows, what it does, and what kind of plant it is. You do the mainframe design, you can fit that stuff in. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. My name is Doug. I just want to thank you for your podcast and all the information you, you bring to us. Uh, I want to say that I recently changed my job because they brought me out into New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and uh, can't really support all the changes that they've made it legally lately. Um, but I do have a question for you here. With all the stuff that you've been covering, uh, been looking for some property to buy, but kind of undecided on the size. And wondering what your thoughts were for creating sustainable heat. And that's kind of been my my decision for the size. You know, it's like, do I want to try to find a bunch of trees on a lot, or do I want to find something, you know, or maybe I can grow something else? Um, just wondering what you thought about that. Thank you. All right, so like a lot of things, it's, it depends. But let's, let's look at just the wood issue. So if you told me I want to have a wood lot, that I can pollard or coppice and constantly have those trees grow back, and I want to be able to produce enough wood on that wood lot to uh, to be sustainable, to where I don't have to um, to ever kill a tree, other than eventually some trees just reach their limit, and you know you replace those as you go. And I want a fuel forest. I would say that in most instances, in most climates, you're probably going to need about an acre to dedicate to just that. So that right there would take your property up to, you know, a minimum of a couple acres because you're wanting to do other things with it than just a, a fuel forest. And that depends on where you're at. Uh, you know, a good climate for growing thing like, things like black locust, uh, an acre, you know, you can establish it. And once you establish it, you can do that. But the other side of that is you're talking about more than a few years to establish that wood lot. And I would prefer to, to establish something like that distributed. Right, so on a 10 acre property, I might have a quarter acre woodlot here, a quarter acre here, a quarter acre here, and a quarter acre here. And I would think about it because you're talking about a fairly substantial forest system that the only thing that's done is wood is harvested, okay, 
and then whatever I cut that I don't use for wood, I chop and drop. That would be the easy way to do it. So I go in, I harvest X amount of, of, of material for fuel, and I have all these branches and leaves and crap, and I just throw them to the ground. Plus, I got a deciduous system. I'm going to be doing this with a hardwood of some sort. I'm going to let that go to the ground. And while locust is very tough to rot, when you start looking at the leaves and twigs and stuff like that laying in the ground in a wet season in a wet winter that stuff does cycle pretty well and there's a lot of nitrogen there and if you position that wood lot the right way it has its own nutrient cycle which would mean we would want to put it upgrade if possible from other things that we're doing so that what washes out of that forest as a nutrient cycle then is usable on other parts of the land. So with the woodlot question, you're looking at an acre at least for the woodlot. Then you got to look at well is there can I find land that already has some woodlot on it that I could do a lot of harvest from and start to move into this sustainable model? Because a lot of times if you find a forest that wasn't managed or put in for this purpose, you have these really long, tall trees. And if you cut one of those down, a lot of times they're, they're, they're species that are not going to come back for you. They're not going to regrow. And if that's the case, then you kind of have this conversion time. And you might need more space to work with initially as you clear certain areas and use that wood. Uh, for your initial stages, and some of that gets converted into fuel forest, some of it gets converted into fuel forest, some of it gets, so I said food and fuel there in case you missed it, so some's food, some's fuel, some's both, some's mixed, um, in fact, that's not a bad way to do it, is the polyculture food and fuel together in bands uh, of forest, and some of it maybe is going to be converted to pasture or open areas for annuals or more of a bush, shrub, vine environment. Maybe some of it, if you don't have a home on there, it's going to be cleared. So, again, it's one of those things where it all depends. If you said to me, what is the minimum acreage that I can have to be really, really self-sufficient, including things like fuel and stuff like that, I'd look in the minimum range of three to five acres, and I'd look for bigger than that when you're starting to talk about things like that. If you want to produce a crap ton of your own food, a half acre will do it. But when you start wanting to produce fuel wood, you get into a different scenario. Now, the, the, the other side of that, though, is do you need it? Do you need a fuel forest? Do you need to produce 100% of your own fuel wood? What if you can produce 50? Um, you know, what if we can improve the efficiency? What if we put in a rocket mass heater uh, to heat with? Well, now we don't need an acre. Right now, now we can start doing prunings and, and taking things out, and a lot of the material that normally uh, we would look at it not being that great of a firewood becomes sufficient. So there's there's a lot of it depends in there. Um, for people overall, though, I would say an acre or two will wear you out, man. It's it's more than you think it is, and you know, go out and walk a few four and five acre properties before you convince yourself you need twenty. Now, that has a lot to do with, well, what's the solar aspect? Is there a house on it already? What type of utilities are there? What's the climate? What's the landscape profile? Is it on the north or south side of a hill? How steep is the land? How much of it is already forested? How much of that forest would you be willing to cut? What type of soil do you have? Can you put in data? I mean, all those questions, and that's why the, uh, the checklist video Jeff did for free is a great place to start, but... Yeah, five acres is, is a much bigger piece of land than you think it is. And, and again, I would encourage people that are in land shopping mode, 
even if you don't think the property's right, especially if you can find relatively flat, relatively open land, which is the easiest to, to design, right? It's the easiest design. It's relatively flat, relatively open. Go walk a five or seven acre property. Just find one that's for sale. Even if you don't think you're going to buy it, phone up the agent and say you'd like to take a look at it. You're not really sure. You know, don't tell them you're bringing cash or something to get them excited. Go be honest. Uh, but get out there and walk it. And, and, and walk it around the circumference like it's a track. And then kind of weave through it on a serpentine motion. And you'll have a new appreciation for what five acres of land really is all about. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Stephen, and I have a question specifically about um, self-sufficiency in food production. Um, I am just wondering what, by your estimation and your experience, what do you think is the reasonable progression um, towards self-sufficiency and how long does that take as far as uh, food production? Um, reading some of, you know, and watching some of this stuff from Marjorie Wildcraft, um, you know, they're obviously not... 100% self-sufficient, but they're very close. Um, I'm reading The Good Life by Helen and Scott Neering, and they obviously did a lot of growing, and they said that they had about 80% of their food um, that they produced themselves. So I, I was just wondering what, from your experience, um, as you know, somebody kind of starting out with homesteading, what is, you know, should I expect, oh, in 10 years maybe I'd get to that point, or, or what? Because obviously it doesn't happen the first um, couple seasons. So thanks very much for everything you do. All right, bye-bye. I, I think the first step is part of what you said is to just immediately get over the concept of 100% self-sufficiency, and I think you're there, and I think that's something that uh, most people need to do. Uh, it, we're not isolationist creatures as human beings. We're just really not. And a life that is based on I don't need anybody anybody for anything is usually not very fulfilling uh, and not very practical in the modern world. And even if there's uh, major uh, turmoil and cataclysm, you can bet that society will begin a rebuilding process. We may not like the results, but there'll they'll be interaction, there'll be trade, there'll be commerce. And in that, we should plan uh, accordingly. And when we look at self-sufficiency and self-reliance, we need to always remember there is a difference. Self-reliance is measured in time. So self-reliance is how long I could be 100% self-sufficient, right? So that means that if I'm producing food, I'm storing food, I'm doing all the things that I need to do, and I could go 90 days in relative comfort, uh, I have a good 90 days of self-reliance built up. Self-sufficiency is how much I provide for myself on an ongoing basis, uh, in, in not in a time of crisis, or could do so indefinitely even in a time of crisis. So we measure that in percentages, not time. So we look at that percentage, and you sound like you're there. So you're on the right frame of mind, but I want to say that for everybody else listening so they get in the right frame of mind as I kind of go through this. So my view is this. Every person is different. You have a different type of land. You have different things you like to eat. You have different soil. You have a different budget. You have a different amount of time that you can put into working on your property. Yeah, Marjorie and her family produce probably 70 to 80% of what they consume. They also spend the majority of their time homesteading. It's their full-time life. And for the average person that works a job eight hours a day, to, to get to that level is going to be difficult unless you really go into the, the, you know, Jeff Lawton school of thought, um, you know, 
food, full on food forest, uh, annuals are a piece, but only a piece and, uh, done in a very well designed, well thought out manner. And you're not going to get there without animals either. I mean, remember Marjorie is doing geese, Marjorie's doing chickens and Marjorie's doing rabbits and not all the geese see winter. I mean, they're, they, they're allowed to get up to a certain population and some of those get, uh, taken out. Now they're not primarily raised for meat, but they provide a significant yield. A goose is a significant yield. The chickens are primarily raised for eggs, but that's a huge protein yield. I'm sure she culls once in a while uh, with the birds, but they're not really raised as a meat crop. The rabbits are a meat crop. Um, when you try to get into this level of self-sufficiency, you kind of have this, this balanced approach. Another way to think about this, though, is what can you grow in surplus beyond your needs that can then be traded, bartered, or sold? And that changes the equation because if you can grow certain things that can be sold through a local cooperative or uh, setting up your own CSA or any type of thing or bartered with another grower for things that they can grow that you can't, it's 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 as good as doing it yourself. It really is. It's now your land is providing the means of commerce, even if it's sold and money is in exchanged. I mean, so it, it, it's got to be a broader stroke. How long should it take? How much time do you have? How much money do you have? How much land do you have? What climate are you in? There's really no hard answer to this. The key is to understand you're not racing Marjorie or me or your neighbor in this. This is not a sprint. It's not even a race. It's a, it's a journey through life. And I would say if all you can do this year is one or two small beds, do that and learn from it and do it again next year. If all you can plant this year is two or three fruit trees, uh, plant them and, and, and figure out how to make sure they survive. You know, if you don't have the time and the money and the resources to put in a self-supporting system, make sure you put in enough irrigation so that those trees survive. But think about where you're going in the future so you can build a system around them. If you told me, Jack, I can afford to plant 20 trees into this system and another uh, 30 bushes and shrubs and stuff, I can buy all that this year, uh, and it'll cover this area of you know X hundred square feet, and that's all I can afford, should I do it? I would probably say no. Do half of it, spend the rest of your money on materials to provide irrigation and mulch, and, and do half of it this year. And, and make sure that you button it down so that it survives and then expand it next year. Put three inches of wood mulch on the ground. And if you can't get it for free, buy it, but take it out of the tree budget. Because I'd rather have, you know, instead of 30 trees, 15 that live, than, than, than plant 30 and 27 of them die. Uh, I'd rather have, you know, a, a bunch of bushes and shrubs that live than plant twice that many and have them die. So scale with your life. Be honest with yourself. How much time do you have to, to, to spend on this? You might be better suited putting in a rather expensive automatic irrigation system in a smaller area than thinking, well, I'll manually do whatever needs to be done in the first couple of years because you might not have the time to do it. Do you have kids? Are they old enough to help? Or are they so old that they'll say they'll help and they won't and you really can't control them anymore? Or are they so young that if they're trying to help, it's a good experience, but they're not really a, 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 an additional adder to labor? Or are your kids gone and you're in a semi-retired state and you can easily spend 20 hours a week enjoying yourself? But, you know, how well do you do outside? All of these things are, 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 are have to be considered to know how long it's going to take you to get 
to where you are. This is the honest assessment, not the pie in the sky bullshit that some people give you that would just say, oh, it's easy in two years. You should be producing half of what you eat. No, it just doesn't work that way. And you also have to look at the percentage of what you're producing of the individual item. Right, So if you live in a great climate for strawberries, you may be able to be 100% self-sufficient with strawberries, but you're not going to live on them. And in that climate, you can probably grow more blackberries. If strawberries grow, blackberries probably grow. And you can probably grow those in such abundance that you'll have more than you need. So now you have 100% self-sufficiency there. You might be able to very easily, especially in a small family with a small flock of laying hens, be 100% self-sufficient with eggs. So also break it off into segments and get those segments buttoned down, the ones that you can be 100% with. Do those first and, and then slowly build up percentages of the other areas. There's no easy answer there. That's the best one I can give you. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma. I have a little gardening question for you, sir. Um, we got a, a dump truck load of peanut holes or Shells, I guess some people might want to call them, but from a uh, peanut uh, company here uh, local. And I, we thought about using it for like um, like like mulch, you know, but around my fruit trees or around some of my plants in the garden. I kind of got to thinking, I wonder if that's a very good idea. Um, and I've got a, a dump truck full, dump truck load full of these peanut holes, and they're just, you know, out there here on my property. Um, thought maybe about trying to make some compost with them, but that's going to make a lot of compost. Um, some of them are, are, they've been stored in a barn, so they're not moldy or anything. Um, and what can I do with them, Jack? I mean, I know I could probably some way feed them to my cows or something, but I don't know. I mean, what, what do you suggest? Should I like, put it in my garden? And, and I know you don't like tilling, but, you know, till it under? Or Man, if you had a dump truck full of peanut holes, what in the world would you do with them? Thanks, Jack. Uh, I'm going to answer this one with I'm not sure. Um, as I've looked into this, there are concerns that using peanut holes for mulching could introduce large amounts of nematodes and not the good kind to a property. So with gardening especially, uh, that's not a good thing, rude knot, nematode, and things like that. And peanut farmers generally deal with that a lot. If you're in a northern climate with a good hard freeze, uh, if they – Are, are kind of you know allowed to go through that freeze unprotected. You'll pretty much whack them all off, and then you can use use it as mulch in the next season. Um, the key to understand with um, peanuts is peanuts are not nuts; they're a legume, and that's a good thing in this instance because a legume is high in nitrogen. Now, the highest portion of nitrogen in a legume is in the bean or the seed, right? The 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 the, pro, the, pro, the production, and, and that would be the peanut that's already been consumed. But the next highest is in the pod. It doesn't matter whether it's a tree that's a legume or a pea or a bean or, in this case, a peanut. So the hole is actually very high in nitrogen. It's not really a carbon source. It's a nitrogen source. I would, if you were going to make compost with them, put them through some kind of a shredder, and I would wet them and then add them to composting. And you're right. A dump truck load is a lot of compost. Not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but I would be more inclined to compost these things than I would to put them on as direct mulch. If you have chickens, I think maybe you have your chicken bedding. So, you know, we do deep mulching. I would 
totally consider using these, uh, especially if you mix them with, with wood shavings at a ratio of about, you know, two thirds to one third. Uh, so two thirds peanut shell and one third wood for a carbon source because you're going to get more nitrogen from the chickens. And after the chickens have done that and they've been, you know, then composted, so you might cycle these through over a couple seasons and end up with really high quality, uh, compost. At that point, and your nematode problem, if it even exists, would be over. I've also read people that say, you know, this is all overblown bull crap that's put out by conventional agriculturists that don't understand natural agriculture in the first place, and plenty of people seem to have used them with no problems. I'd be careful with that, just because I know the nematode threat is real. Um, it's a legitimate concern because peanuts face this pest and if you're getting a big you know dump truck load of peanuts it's no secret where they came from they came from an agricultural monocultured environment where people grew peanuts um they're, they're probably not heavily laced with herbicide that's not something that's generally done from my knowledge with peanuts so that's less of a concern um but i i just have a you know I guess they could be tested in a, in a single bed that's a little bit isolated from the rest. And do you have any problems? And then maybe you can use them. I would be less concerned with mulching in a, a, a food forest environment with them. Uh, I, I really would. Uh, because the type of nematode that's an agricultural pest really isn't that big of a problem in a polycultured forest. Um, there, there's so much biodiversity there and so much predation and so many beneficial nematodes in that situation. You're almost feeding them. But when you look at root crops and things like that in a uh, more limited polyculture of a, of a permaculture garden even or even a conventional garden, I, I'm just a little bit concerned about that. But with that l amount of mulch, you're probably not really thinking about doing it as garden mulch. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I I don't know if you have a problem or a solution now, and that's the best I can do. If anybody's worked with peanut uh, holes and uh, has a solution, please comment in today's show notes. That's the best kind of walking around the question answer I can give you from the research I did uh, to try to get you an answer on this. I've just never had that question before and uh, never been presented with the opportunity to use that much uh, peanut holes before. Uh, but the nitrogen's there, and uh, it would make a really high-quality compost. You may want to reconsider it being too much. You may want to actually do this. If you have like a, a skid loader or a bobcat or something like that, uh, getting enough of another material to make a good compost and doing a kind of the way they do commercial pot, uh, composting. Generally, they don't do giant piles. A lot of times they'll, uh, they'll spread this stuff out. Uh, you know, uh, you know, a foot deep and, 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 and mixed with whatever and keep it wet. Uh, and it composts pretty quick that way. And once you get the heat going, then you push it up into a pile, and you might be able to make an awful lot of compost out of that and uh, come up with some real high-quality stuff, even something you might sell into your local community. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jake Olson up here in Minnesota again. Hey, I've got a permaculture challenge question for you, and that's how would you, you know, if you had plenty of space, how would you design a half-court basketball court into a permaculture system in a way that it actually, you know, that that, you know, big slab of black top with a basketball hoop actually benefits the system instead of as a uh, big block to the whole system. I'd be curious what type of principles you would design into that if you wanted to, you know, we, as we think about how we want to live our life, we realize we want our home 
as our kids grow older to be one of the homes where the kids want to hang out. We want to have that kind of influence on our kids and their friends. And I remember when I was in, you know, I was 9, 10, 15, 16, you know, the kids who had the basketball hoop, we spent a lot of time at their houses. So just a question for you on that. If uh, if you were going to put a half-court basketball court in your in your property there, how would you design that into the system? How would you design your system now, knowing you're going to do that in the future? Thanks again for all the great tips, and uh, look forward to hearing your answer. Well, it's a great question, and, and my view is it's a great design element. Um, you, you certainly would have a, a thermal mass. So if you thought about your solar aspect and the place that was going to get the greatest solar aspect, uh, southern side, especially through winter, uh, to turn that thermal mass on and heat it up. And some of the things that are just on the edge that you do, I wish I could grow this, but if I was just one or two zones further south or warmer, I would be able to do it. And I can't, you probably could grow it there with a thick, deep mulch to protect the roots. I mean, one of the things that immediately springs to mind would be, uh, figs, because even if a fig dies to the ground, it'll grow back and produce over and over and over again. The only thing you have to worry about is does it get cold enough to kill off those roots? And if you're right at the point where it kind of careens over to where figs won't work, it'll probably work there. Uh, a little further south, maybe where figs aren't a problem, maybe citrus would go there. So that would be one particular example of what you want to think about before you do this. The next thing is that that court is always going to be open, right? So you've effectively, if you're you know doing kind of the urban forest, food forest thing, you've created a fairly significant glade. Uh, but unlike a conventional glade, it's permanent. What I mean by that is um, in, in a forest system, unless you're managing a glade, it's going to fill up. Something's going to pioneer it. You're going to plant something in it that's going to fill it in eventually, or nature's going to do it for you, or you're going to have to manage it to keep it open. With blacktop or concrete, it's going to stay open. So now I have a permanent glade. That means I have four distinct permanent edges, and I want to maximize the growth at the edge. Right, So I have four distinct ones because I have a southern edge, a northern edge, an eastern wedge, and a western edge. So I want to think about my plantings around those four edges. Then I have something that is the biggest asset that this brings me. I have a 100% runoff of all rainfall. I have, a, in essence, another roof that I can harvest water from. But unlike a roof where it's really easy to put a rain barrel or a pond or something in, With this, now I've got it at ground level. So I might really want to think about where I put that half-court basketball court in regards to the elevation on the property. And I'll tell you the one place I definitely probably don't want to put it at the lowest point. I want to get it up into the mid to high point of the property so that from there I can probably push that runoff and it would be significant. I mean, let's look at the dimensions in the runoff here. So I think a half court officially, a half court would be 42 by 50 feet. Call it 40 by 50, 2,000 square feet. Uh, 2,000 square feet of catchment is going to give you about 12,400 gallons of water per 10 inches of rainfall. So call it 12, we conservative and say 12,000 gallons per 10 inches. So that means if you live in an area that gets 30 inches of rainfall, which is a lot of the United States, uh, you're looking at 36,000 ga gallons of runoff. 
And that's definitely something you want to consider. Uh, even if you live in a place, in fact, let's say you live in a place with only 10 inches of rainfall. What's well, 12,000 gallons of runoff? Do you want to consider that even more now, don't you? So it's a, it's a, a critical design element, knowing that, that that runoff surface will be there and considering how you channel the water. So the, the three main things I would consider in that structure, water runoff and how do I push it through and harvest it in the landscape, thermal mass and where I gain the most from it and what I can put in that area that normally would be difficult to grow. And I would also um, then want to consider the glade effect or edge effect in four distinctive regions, north, south, east, and west, and what kind of solar aspect and exposure they're going to get and what will do best on those edges. I also might want to think a little bit about things like, do I want to provide shade to play basketball? I mean, I know people don't think basketball is a survival topic, but is fitness not a survival topic? Is playing basketball not a route towards maintaining your fitness level? If you're comfortable playing basketball, might not you play it more? Therefore, you might get more. See what I mean? I mean, this is, this is actually a very much a self-sufficiency, self-reliance, fitness, survival, health topic because it's an athletic element added into the design and something maybe we should consider a bit more. So how might we do that? Well, we know that the overhead sun in midday is something we can only do so much about because we can only shade in a court so much. And if we do, we kind of lose a lot of the edge effect. We can do some things with that. But we also know that typically people are kind of at work in the middle of the day. And in the morning, even though there's a solar you know, event hitting you pretty hard, um, generally speaking, the morning sun's easier to deal with than the western sun. That western sun, now that's where you might get pounded pretty hard in pl- trying to you know, get home from work, 5.30 in the afternoon, you, you have dinner, whatever, relax a little bit. Long days of summer, you go out there to play some ball, and that sun is just on a low angle beating on you. And not only is it hot, it's also maybe hitting you in the face. So you might want to think about where the goal is versus the sun versus the time that you're going to play to minimize the effect of having players with their face you know, into the sun. But we also might want to think about what time of day, solar aspect at time of day that I'm going to play the most, <laughs> that uh, that it's hot out, and I might want to plant something that specifically provides shade for that. And I might, I, want that, I might want that to be a productive planting. I might do something like put in a pretty high trellis, or more like a pergola, like a freestanding one, maybe overhangs the western edge of the court, and plant... Uh, something like kiwis or grapes up there that provides not just a side block but a bit of an overhead. And that might actually, even if there's parts of the core where the sun's still hitting it, reduce the thermal gain of the mass underneath your feet and therefore make the surface that you're playing on a little bit more comfortable to play on. Conversely, the plantings that need the thermal mass gain in the winter, when that deciduous thing falls, you know, drops its leaves, well, Now that thermal mass can still get the gain because the leaves aren't there blocking it. So it's actually a a really cool question, and it leads you to why permaculture is so awesome. How did I get that answer? Because the design science is consistent. 
And I understand the design science. Therefore, whenever you stick an element into the design, it places restrictions on you. And the restrictions are actually what lead to the solution. And the more restrictions you place, actually, the easier the design becomes. You want a hard design? Get a 10-acre field that's relatively flat with no trees, no house, no nothing. You've got to start from scratch. That's why urban is so cool because it's, all the things you think that are problems become solutions and t- the tighter the restrictions, the more creative the design becomes. And as soon as you start to give answers, the, the rest of them just flow. That's why I love permaculture. That's why I think it's the solution to self-sufficiency in the food industry, uh, for us from, from individual up to, uh, you know, to the corporate level, honestly, at some point when society wakes up to it. Anyway, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Donald from ifithitsthefan.com. Uh, got a quick question for you about sweet potatoes. How do you know when it's time to harvest them? Uh, background, I've heard you talk in the past about, uh, when you were a kid in Florida. And apartment complexes having decorative sweet potatoes and you knowing that the, the actual potatoes were growing under the decoratives. Uh, my wife just planted her, uh, nice big garden parts for her, uh, ornamentals and she put sweet potatoes in there and I want to know when to harvest. Keep it the great work and I'll catch you later. Thanks. Bye. Well, it's a good question, and the reality is you can pretty much harvest sweet potato any time during its production as soon as it starts to put tubers on. Uh, what happens is over time they get bigger and better, and uh, they usually can't get too big. Um, you definitely want to harvest before your first hard frost. Um, you generally need a long growing season, so in most places you can get them in the ground in May uh, without much danger of a frost, and you're going to probably harvest in early October. And that's just a time frame. But you can look at other indicators. Um, but the, the thing about sweet potatoes, it's not like conventional potatoes where you start to have, you know, the flowers come and then they go and the leaves start to die back and now you know it's time. There's no real indicator and you don't want to leave them in the ground in a place with hard freezes uh, to overwinter. Now, in a lot of places, well, mulch and all, some will survive, but you'll generally damage the food quality. So you want to get them out of the ground before the first freeze, and the longer you can leave them in the ground coming up to the first freeze, the more tubers will set and the larger tubers you'll get. But kind of a May plant, October harvest is a good guy line. So if you live in an area where you can get them in at the end of April uh, and, and leave them in the ground until the end of October, you're just going to get more and bigger tubers. Uh, and if you live in an area where you have to condense that some and you're really not comfortable putting them in the ground till late May because you even get May frost and you are going to get fro- you know, a heavy frost, let's say, uh, by, let's say around October 1st, you can shorten that to kind of a late May, mid-September harvest. You're just going to get less and smaller sweet potatoes and no problems at all. By the way, I didn't say they did that in the apartments I grew up in. That's being done now. Uh, I grew up in apartments that were growing things like plums and pomegranates and cool stuff like that in Florida. Uh, sweet potato is one of the most common ornamental plants in existence right now uh, in many apartment complexes throughout the South. I say that mainly because if you were ever in a food scarcity situation, uh, you might want to know where they are because sweet potato green, unlike potato greens, which you would never eat, uh, could be toxic and taste like crap. 
And fortunately, most things that are toxic do taste, not all things, but most things that are toxic do taste like crap. Sweet potato uh, leaves are actually a very good green. You can eat them raw or you can cook them, saute them and things like that. So even if it's a time of year where it wouldn't be worth digging the tubers up, knowing where they are would be a source of food. And knowing where they are in September, October-ish, you might be able to load a pickup truck full of sweet potatoes up. You might even be able to go out and talk to landscaping contractors about when they're going to get rid of the, the ornamental sweet potatoes. And if they're doing it late enough in the year, you may be able to get free sweet potatoes. Uh, one guy wrote me after I said that in the past, and I think he got almost 300 pounds of them by doing just that. He said they were rather small, uh, that the contractor would go in and, 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 and take them out, uh, fairly early because they wanted another ornamental planting before, uh, they got too far along. Um, and the guy did not want to worry about when they, he's like, we just go in with a bobcat and we just, you know, we just kind of basically redo this whole area every year for the customer, but he was willing to let the guy come in and harvest them himself uh, the morning of the day they were going to do the work. So he went in there and took as much out as he could, and they came in and they actually left a lot of stuff in the ground, he said. Um, but, uh, the, but th that's another opportunity. So the only reason I bring that up is because knowing that this is something that's going on right now uh, is important because there's no such thing as ornamental sweet potatoes. The sweet potato is a sweet potato is a sweet potato. They all produce tubers, and they're all edible. Now, there may be some other sort of tuber-looking, sweet potato-ish looking thing out there, but if it's actually a sweet potato, um, and you can dig up a sweet potato, you can eat it. And uh, some varieties are better than others, but there's a lot of it out there. So it might behoove you, and they'll start planting them about now over the next couple of weeks. They'll start to come into garden centers and all. Um, but by the end of May, uh, you should see if they're going to be planting in your area. You'll probably see them, and you might want to just observe that. There's a lot of things that are planted as ornamentals that are edibles, and knowing where they are is probably a good idea if the shit hits the fan. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jonathan from Indianapolis, Indiana. Quick question. Can you talk about the alternatives to Roundup herbicides, particularly scorching weeds with a propane torch? I have a pretty darn long driveway. It's about 300 feet, so I don't think I can catch much on fire except for weeds. All right. Thanks, man. Love the show. Well, let me just say, I think for eliminating weeds, you just gave the best foolproof way to do that. And When you're doing torching of weeds, you don't have to burn the crap out of them. All you have to do is just hit them with the heat until they start to wilt. And uh, generally speaking, that's it. They're done. They, you basically rupture the cells, and uh, you, you, you know, hit them down to the ground with that. You'll rupture the cells and the roots, and you'll really disadvantage them. And you'll leave them there, and you won't burn them to a crisp. So their organic matter will then feed the soil. Uh, there's other things you can do. Uh, mixtures with vinegar and water are quite effective. Physical removal works. Um, putting animals over them that will consume them and dig them up and disturb them works. Those are your, your primary means of eliminating them. The problem is, if you only eliminate them, they will come back. Remember, if you, if you build it, they will come. If you only eliminate them, they will come back. They'll come back over and over and over and over again. And no matter what you seem to do, whether you burn it, yank it, have a chicken eat it, mulch it, they're going to come back. So what do we do to make them not come back? We put something in their place. So we might, if we have a place, for instance, where you have some hard structure with cracks in it, 
and you have something that you just have weeds just keep coming out of those cracks in rocks or, or concrete or something. And yeah, I, what do I do? Well, you could either seal, seal the crack uh, or plant something into it like pennyroyal. Now you've got something that is a good, usable herb that will occupy that space, that will handle the heat and the, the tough environment that that represents, and then your weeds will stop coming back. Uh, or, you know, in certain areas you might plant uh, something like Herb Robert or Go to Cola. Those are great herbs, and they're very, very hardy uh, herbs. So it, 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 you might... If you want lawn there, uh, go in with a really good, uh, lawn seed and, and, you know, put in some cover and then, and then get that irrigated and get that lawn up because lawn in itself is not bad. We need some open places for recreation and sporting events and things like that. Um, but, you know, so it, it's a matter of, yeah, go ahead and eliminate it. And yes, uh, scorching is probably the best. Um, but if you want it gone for good, If you don't put something else there, it or something like it or something worse will return. You have to think about it this way. If you keep killing weeds in an area, um, you may eventually start to cause erosion and nutrient loss if you don't put anything else in their place. In that instance, you'll actually degrade the quality of the land and a stronger, more vigorous, more pioneering weed capable of fixing what you're breaking will show up to do the job. And it's like magic, right? It's like magic. It just, it's, nature seems to know what she's doing. If you've never seen a squash bug in your life and you don't have any in your property, plant squash and sooner or later they'll show up. You've created an environment conducive to them and they can move. Well, weed seeds can move. And if you create an environment conducive to a weed in your area, sooner or later it will find that area and it will start to colonize that area. So, yeah, um, those are my three. Physical, actually four. Physical removal, animal removal, animal removal, put an animal over them that'll eat them, uh, which is another form of physical removal. Scorching, a vinegar mix. But once that's done, get something in its place or it's just going to come back. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Jason in South Coastal Georgia, Jason389 on the forum. My question is about uh, no-till gardening. I'm absolutely sold. I'm with you on getting rid of the tiller. So this is the first year that I've semi-converted my garden to no-till. And the cardboard and newspaper thing works great. My question is, next year when I get ready to replant, uh, I plan on planting a cover crop this year in the fall. But when I get ready to replant, that's really what I have the most question around. So today I take out the tiller and till it up. And then, uh, you know, especially for things that say that they need well-worked, loosened soil, such as, uh, for example, carrots and maybe onions. When I get ready to do the no-till next year, um, how do I do I just plant the seeds into what's mulched over and what I, into my cover crop? Or how exactly do I go back to replanting after the first year of no-till? That's my question. I look forward to hearing the answer. Appreciate the show. Uh, thanks a lot. This is something that most people struggle with. Okay, fine, I can plant the first year. What about the second year? Well, if it's if it's not tilled and it's well mulched, the soil will be well worked by all the little creatures that do the work for you all year round. You won't have to worry about anything. It'll be just fine. You just plant right into it. I want to plant onions or lettuce or something like that that has this uh, small seed and has a hard time getting up. Pull the mulch back and and just disturb the first half inch of soil where you're planting, which pretty much by making a furrow or something like that you'll do. Plant your seed, cover it, make sure you keep it well irrigated while it's not heavily mulched, 
and once it gets up, push the mulch back. But there's a root in the ground. Plant next to the root instead of on top of the root. Move your plantings over a couple inches. Leave it there. It's a fast carbon pathway. It will start to die and decay and become food for just it just trust nature in this instance. And if you can find this is what I keep trying to explain to people because you see my wood mulch. If you can find a source of straw that you know is not tainted with herbicide, use that straw for mulch on your garden beds over wood at least with your tender or crops that have a harder time getting up and through. With your perennials and your tough crops and your you know well-established plants that you're digging up, sticking into the ground, just plant it. It'll be fine. But don't think an onion can't make its, spa- its own space in, in soil, especially a nice garden bed that's in a no-till situation. It'll, it'll, it'll handle it. Don't think a carrot can't drive its way down through there. It'll handle it. Remember, the, the seed packet instructions generally come from people that don't understand these technologies. They think in conventional means. And yeah, if your soil is hard packed and full of weeds because it's tilled every year, it's got to be well worked before you plant that seed into it or it ain't going to be able to penetrate the ground. But if you have a nice, beautiful bed, whether it's a raised bed or in the ground bed, that sat all winter under three or four inches of mulch or a cover crop that's just been cut back and then mulched and given a, you know, if you have a cover crop and you're going into your spring and you want to plant in two weeks, cut that cover. If the cover crop has not winter killed, go ahead and you cut it, lay it to the ground as mulch itself and mulch over and wait two weeks before you plant. When you plant into that soil, you don't have to work anything. That's the whole point. It's, it's a lot easier than people think. Uh, maybe I'll do a show next week or the week after specifically just on no-till gardening because there's so many questions about it. And a lot of the things people are concerned about just don't even exist. It's just not there. Uh, and then, I mean, the big one is, well, there's roots from last year's tomato plants. If you really want to, yank them out. But the reality is cut them off of the ground, mulch over them, and plant four inches over. Right? Your tomato plants were a foot and a half apart. They were 18 inches apart last year. Well, just shift the new ones four inches from where the old ones were. Or if you're not going to put tomatoes back in the same bed, you're going to put peppers. Shift the, Just shift. You know, shift a little forward or backward. Leave the root alone. It's fine. It's food for the soil. Leave it be. It's okay. I know you've seen it for so many years where it's got to come out. It really doesn't have to come out. It's really okay if you leave it in there. It really will go away. Worms and other things really will eat it. Even if you have corn stubble from a cornfield, cut it to the ground and plant in between the old corn plants. They'll become food for the soil and for the new crop. It's just like nature does it. Who tills the prairie every year? Nobody. How does the new seed grow? The old seed, this, the old seed that grew, the old crops, the old, the old, uh, older, uh, plants that died over winter nurture the seed that penetrates the ground all by itself. How does it get past the roots that are down there? They're in a disadvantaged state while it's in an advantaged state. It's okay. It really is. Let's take another one. Jack, Steve from New Hampshire. I have property in the southern Maine, New Hampshire border. Blueberries, pine trees, oaks, and maples grow great. Uh, what else can I plant besides the blueberries? The blueberries, if I don't trim them, grow to, could grow to be 15 feet tall. What would go good here? All right, thank you. Tons of stuff that I can't grow that I'm jealous of. That you, you know, you're probably jealous of what I can grow. I mean, it's it's not hard. 
Um, let me give you some stuff. I just did a show on small-scale food forest, and I'm just looking at my own list, and I'm going to pick everything out of this list that would probably do well where you're at. Um, I would say Filbert's will probably be able to handle your cold, but I'm not sure on that one. Um, persimmons. Uh, I would say cherries. Uh, I'm just on the trees right now, and I'm limiting myself to things that I put out, and those would probably be some of your best bets. Uh, I think mulberry needs to be a bit further south. Now let's get into the bushes and shrubs where I get jealous. So you already got blueberry and blackberry. How about raspberry? Um, how about uh, elderberry, gooseberry, currants, uh, gummies, uh, sea buckthorn, blue honeysuckle, aronia, hibiscus cranberry, uh, alpine strawberries, uh, wintergreen. Uh, I would say cranberries would would do well up there. Uh, Don't know on the grapes. There might be a variety or two you could look up. Check Raintree Nursery uh, on grape varieties. You might be able to pull that off. But certainly kiwis, uh, specifically Arctic kiwis, uh, and the kiwis that aren't fuzzy uh, would do very well uh, up there for you. There's just a ton of stuff that would would do really good for you up there. Uh, that's just a kind of a getting started point. Just, I mean, do this. Don't limit yourself. Let's throw some other ones in there. Saskatoons, which are kind of like a, a blueberry. Uh, honeyberry, if I didn't say that already, would do good there. Sea buckthorn would, would do good there. I mean, there's just a ton of things that do well in these northern climates, and a lot of them are nitrogen fixers, and, and I can't grow them. It's too hot here. Um, I, again, this is the grass is greener scenario, I think. I don't know the caller really has it, but most people do. It's like, well, man, you can grow all this stuff down south, and there's so many things I can't grow that you can, and uh, you can grow this stuff in the tropics. And honestly, my climate is the harder climate. There's all this cool weather stuff that does well in, in a northern climate that can you know, handle a freeze and a frost uh, but can't handle the heat that I have, and all this stuff in the tropics that would grow great for nine months out of the year and then die in December or January when we get a hard frost. It doesn't matter how often it freezes, just that it freezes every year. So uh, there's just a ton of stuff there. Those are some ideas for you. Pawpaw should do good uh, uh, that far north. Southern Maine, uh, we're talking about USDA, probably Zone 5, right? Zone 5 is most of Southern Maine, I would say. Um, so especially down on the, 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 you know, mid to the Southern part of the New Hampshire border, um, I would say that there's just a ton of things that are available in a zone five. Uh, again, I would really recommend, even if you don't order from them, uh, get over to rain tree nursery and get their catalog or look through their website and just look for anything that will handle zone five. Um, there's so much good stuff out there that handles these cooler climates. I gave you a list, but I'm sure you can expand on it from there. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Brendan from uh, Georgia. Uh, calling about the difference between uh, 401k investing and uh, Roth, um, both employee-sponsored accounts. Uh, just starting off at a position, at the first position that uh, offers such things, and they match up to 8%. Uh, so wanted to know the pros and cons of those. I know uh, you wouldn't be the kind of guy to tell me to do one thing or the other, um, but just want to know what I'm getting into um, as far as money availability and also uh, tax benefits. I, I do know the difference, you know, as far as a Roth normally, um, but I wasn't sure if I should have some in each of those accounts um, or, you know, benefits of that. So thank you. I have two separate things to advise you of with this. And number one is, Do not save all your money. Do not even save all your money you're saving for retirement 
and a tax-deferred account right now. Um, save some in cash. Save some in physical metal that you hold that's in your hand or at least, at, at very least, in a, a safe deposit box in a bank. And if you even want to invest in stocks, bonds, securities, that's fine. Do some of it outside of tax deferral status because the government has got their greedy little fingers just poking into the 401k IRA pie. And they're doing a lot of things and the landscape is going to change and they're going to break their word. I don't know exactly how. I don't know how bad it's going to affect us, but I am not a fan of having money that has a giant bullseye on it as everything that I'm relying on. And that's what's going on here. There is, to, to mediate this, I think they might not go directly at this. I, I think that part of what the government might do in the next couple of years is come up with a new um, private retirement account for everybody. And they might say all employers are required to put away 2% of employees' earnings. Um, and states might even do this to get ahead of the federal government. And if states do it, gee, the default investment will be state bonds. And if the federal government does it, the default investment will be federal bonds. And they might both collaborate on it and do one and one and one and the other. And they'll say it's only 2%. Shut up and do it, employers. And they'll tell the employees, see, it doesn't cost you any money. And uh, the sheep will vote for it because they don't understand that it's coming right out of their paycheck. Because if I'm an employer and the government adds 2% burden to my payroll, it's coming out of somewhere. And guess the easiest place I can take it from? You're raised next year, buddy. And when I'm hiring a new person, that's getting factored in. And that's just the way it is. Uh, there is no such thing as something I charge your employer that doesn't cost you money, including existing Social Security. This will be what Social Security already does, except they'll say it's private and you can move it around in like a pension account. But they want to make sure you're safe. So the safest investment is government bonds, which is really sort of kind of what Social Security is because it works the same way, right? Except it's not subject to the fluctuations of the bond market, right? So that may mitigate how directly they charge in because that's going to be easier to sell the sheep. Uh, so it may influence how directly they charge at the existing money. But there, make no mistake about it, there are trillions of dollars tied up there and they want their hands on it. So that's one reason to be careful on either or. And make sure some money stays out of that. The other reason is, let's say you're 25, 30 years old. Between now and the time you're 59 and a half, or when one of the things they might do is raise the age or increase penalties or something like that, you might need that money. Um, and if you need that money, you might want to be able to get your hands on it. So some of the money not even there in the first place might be a good idea in saving for your future because you might find yourself in your 50s relatively well to do if you play things right and do the right things. And you might want to go into an early retirement but not have those funds available without significant penalty. So those are all reasons to make sure that 100% of your savings is not going in tax-deferred accounts. Uh, and, and should not, even if you find somebody that figures out how to do it. It's the most public money you'll ever hold. Everybody can see it, especially everybody in government. It's a government-designed investment vehicle. Therefore, no matter what you're invested in underneath it, they have higher visibility into that money than anything else, and it's a political football right now. All right. Now, Roth versus conventional. Let's say you say, that's fine. I've decided I'm going to invest 10%, 20%, 1%, whatever it is into an IRA. Which one should I take? Every financial advisor that gives you advice other than this is full of shit. Roth. Every time, Roth. Every time, Roth. Every time, Roth. I will tell you what to do here because they're all wrong. They're all wrong in so many ways. Here's the reason. 
They, this is what they say. But when you retire, you'll have a lower income and therefore be subject to a lower tax rate. So it's better to pay your tax rate on the lower income level in retirement than pay the tax rate on the higher income in, in your working years. Bullshit! You don't know that! Every financial advisor that says those words to their client needs to be smacked in the freaking face. Because please tell me, Mr. Financial Liar, what will tax rates be in uh, 30 years? What's my tax rate going to be in 30 years? What's it going to be? Do you know? If you say you do, you're full of shit. Will it be lower or higher than it is today? You say you know, you're full of shit. You're lying. You don't know. A Roth means that that money is never taxable again unless they break their word. Okay? So that means I'll pay the tax today and I won't have to pay the tax tomorrow because here's the other side of it. Now you're retired. Now you're 65. Now you said like some money, please. And you go to your financial liar financial freaking liar, because that's what most of you guys at the consumer level are. Most of the people handling investments for people with a net worth under $2 million are full of shit, relationship-trained salespeople that don't know their ass from a hole in the ground about investing. You see how angry I am? Not angry at the caller, man. I'm angry at these people. And you know what? The ones that administer the 401ks, the ones they send out to your workplace and say, the best time to start investing was yesterday. But if you haven't done that, you should start today. Right? Right? Those guys that give you little retirement calculators and say, this is your risk analysis portfolio. You should do 25% in bonds if you're, those guys, they don't know shit. They don't know shit. Most of them are broke. They don't have any money. They don't know what they're doing. You don't qualify for the people that know that they do because the system is rigged. So you, it's actually illegal for the best advisors to take you as a client. You're not high enough in net worth. Don't trust these people. They don't know. Think for yourself. So now you're 65. I'm sorry to go on a segue here, but you're 65. You'd like some money, please. And when you take money out of a conventional IRA, it's considered income. So your Social Security is non-taxable up to a certain point and non-taxable based on how much other income you take. So now you say to your financial liar, I'd like $50,000 this year, please. Please distribute that over 12 months. And he says, ugh. Just so you know, you're going to now make your Social Security uh, uh, benefits taxable, assuming Social Security is still around. What? Well, now your income is going to be like, you know, 25,000 Social Security, 50 to $75,000 income level, and you're going to be at a significantly. But if it's a Roth and you take $50,000 out that year, none of it's income. So not only is the distribution not subject to taxation, but the Social Security, if it's still around when you retire, is not subject to taxation because you haven't gone over the income level from a pension distribution because it's not a qualified distribution because it's your money you already pay taxes on. All right. You want me to tell you another reason these idiots are idiots and they don't know what they're talking about? If I have a Roth IRA and I've contributed $50,000 to it and there's now $70,000 into it due to, uh, to capital gains, I can actually, before retirement age, take $50,000 right back out of it and not pay a dime in penalties or interest uh, because I've already paid taxes on it. It's already been taxed. And as long as I fill out the paperwork right, I can withdraw all the money that I've contributed and already paid taxes on. Why might I want to do that? It's an emergency and I need the money and I don't want to go into debt. You should never touch your money and your retirement. It's better to borrow money. Financial liar. Financial liar that needs to be smacked. You don't know shit. You guys really don't know shit. I mean, the more I think about the industry, the more disgusted I become with it. I don't know how many financial advisors I talked to before the, the stock market went to shit 
that I was trying to find a new broker to work with, that I said, this is what's coming. No, you're so young, you don't need to worry about it. Oh, gee, thanks, Mr. Ass Clown. I mean, if I had listened to these people, I would have took a $100,000 bath easy. But the market's up 150% off its low. No, the market's up 50% over where it was before it fell because it had to go up 100% to break even. And that's been how many years? Okay, how far in the hole are people because they listen to your stupid-ass advice about invest for the long haul, don't try to time the market. These people piss me off. So, now, why might you want to take that money out? One, there's an emergency. Well, you could borrow from your own account, and when you can't afford to repay it, you get charged the interest and penalties that you really can't afford because you took the money out because you were in a financial emergency. See how stupid that is? You see how stupid these people are? If it's a Roth, you just take out the money you've contributed, you leave the gain in there, assuming there is a gain, and that money is subject to no taxation as long as you wait till you're old enough to take it out as a qualified distribution. So you can get the money back out. Why might else you want to do this? Oh, I don't know, because the government's about to steal your retirement accounts. One way or another, they're about to stick their fingers into it. And because it's such a touchy subject, and they'll have to wait so much class warfare to do it, they're not going to be able to do it overnight. Therefore, they're slowly going to do it. Therefore, you might somewhere along the line say, to hither thou shalt come and no further. I'm at least taking out all the money that I put into the Roth that I can get out of the account. And when I do that, then I can move that into some other vehicle that you can't get your grubby little frickin' government fingers into, right? Because they're going to start with accounts, capping them at $3 million, and don't think they're going to stop there. And by the way, if you're 30, when you're 60, $3 million won't be crap compared to what it is today. And you won't be super wealthy at that rate, and they'll never lower that or raise that number, but they just might lower it. So the government's coming after these accounts, And the government taxes you on a conventional. And then the financial liar tells you, but your tax rate will be lower. But that is incumbent upon you taking such a small distribution that you don't have enough income to raise your tax rate. And that's assuming that your financial lying asshole knows what tax rates are going to be in 20 years or 30 years, and he doesn't. That assumes an awful lot of things that are unknown. But a Roth, we have certain knowns. Now, the one caveat. Doing this, and I'm still going to say to do the same thing, but doing this in a company-sponsored account. Um, most I, uh, 401ks now, you cannot quit contributions and withdraw the money while you still work there. Very few employers allow this. They've put this money into a captive hold, and they've done it very quietly behind the scenes. They've eliminated cash options. They've replaced them with bond options inside these these vehicles. So, if you do this inside your employer's account, understand that as long as you work there, that money's going to be held hostage. The minute you quit your job or take a new job, you can roll it into an individual IRA. And if it's a Roth, it rolls to, rolls to a Roth IRA. And you can do whatever you want. If they're doing a 100% match up to 8%, it's probably worth it. Okay? But understand this, too, about the Roth. The employer-side contribution, um, as far as I know, is not subject to taxation. And therefore, it would be a gain in the Roth itself, and the employer's contributed part would not be able to be withdrawn once rolled because it's not going to go into the line that says, what did you put in? All right, So that would get held hostage, but that's no different than any other gain. And it's not really held hostage, it's just not yours until you're 59 and a half. And you can always, once it's into an IRA, go ahead and say, I'll pay the interest and penalties and bail. If you ever get to a point where you feel you need to. The whole point is the Roth gives you more options. 
And generally speaking, when people talk about the tax advantages, they ignore the most re most important reality. If you're going to contribute 5%, you're going to do it whether you pay taxes or not, and your life won't really change very much for it. But when you're in withdrawal mode, that's when it will really matter. Never do a conventional IRA. Never do a conventional IRA. Never do a conventional IRA. I don't care what your circumstances are unless you're going to retire in five years. If you're going to retire in five years or less and use the money, you might make it actually work. But for everybody else in the world, don't listen to your financial liar. He doesn't know shit. He was trained how to talk you off the ledge when you want to bail out of your investments, and he was trained how to be a relationship salesman. And everything he tells you, somebody told him to tell you. He doesn't think for himself. And I know I've pissed a lot of you financial advisors off. Well, get off your ass and actually start helping people protect their money. And if you do that, you shouldn't be upset because you're the exception rather than the rule. But the number, you know, the, the majority of you that are walking the party line are full of shit. You don't know your ass from a hole in the ground. And maybe you just got schooled on the difference between Roth and conventional IRAs and why the advice you're giving people is dangerous and wrong. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Alan in Atlanta. My question is, Do we have to spray our fruit trees? I'm starting a food forest, and all the people that I talk to at the nursery say that I need to spray. And in my mind, I'm thinking that Mother Nature doesn't spray anything. And I know the pro answer probably involves a, it depends, but my goal is to have a uh, sustainable edibles when we're unable to obtain sprays and fertilizers. By not spraying, am I setting myself up for failure? Thanks for all you do, and keep up the great work. Since we've gone so long as we usually do on these shows, I'm going to give you the short answer. No, don't spray. Done. I mean, show me one video where somebody's put in an urban permaculture food forest or a major food forest, let's say, and when we came in and we sprayed it with a bunch of chemicals. You're, you, you've got to start separating advice from people based on where they're coming from. These people are talking about planting a freaking orchard, planting trees at specified distances with no support species, white out in the open, monocropping them, and gee, you can't get production unless you spray them with all kinds of crap. Well, that's because of how you've planted them. I don't want to go into another rant. You're right. Just don't spray your freaking trees. If you have trees that won't work in your climate because you're not spraying them, get a different tree. Find something that does work in your climate. Stop dry, trying to grow something that needs to be sprayed four times a year. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Next next call, and I think the next one's the last one. Hey, Jack. This is Patrick in Kentucky. Uh, I had a question I wanted to run by you. It's not something I would be able to do anytime in the near future, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. That was an interesting idea. It deals with aquaponics. Um, what if, instead of bringing the fish to you, you go to the fish? Uh, what I mean is something like taking an old pontoon boat frame, putting a hoop house over it, and um, you know, putting that on a little half-acre pond or so. Uh, with all the uh, Jeff Lawton videos that are going on and, and a lot of the excitement about water catchment and things like that, It seems that that might, you know, actually taking the plant uh, to a, a water feature in landscape um, might have some benefits. Like, you know, fish kill might not be near as big of an issue, uh, especially uh, feeding the fish. Uh, you could do different things to, you know, instead of bringing food in, you know, let the let the fish um, fend for themselves. But uh, I've been thinking about it for a day or two and thought it was a pretty interesting idea. Uh, I wanted to run it by you and, and see what you thought. Yeah, it would take an investment, but uh, but it might be worthwhile. 
Thanks for your show and everything you do. Have a good day. Bye. Uh, what you're talking about would work, and it's just kind of uh, an interesting, creative way of uh, replicating an ancient technique called the chinampa, which is really kind of sort of what you'd be building there. It won't work like aquaponics, though. And the reason it won't work like aquaponics is because you have too much water in relation to your grow bed. And, uh, for, for instance, if I have a aquaponic system and I have, let's say, uh, um, a 300-gallon tank, and in that tank I have 100 tilapia, now, I need the plants or I need a mechanical filter, one or the other, to keep those tilapia alive because I've put too many fish in for the volume of water that I have for the natural cycles of the nitrite-nitrate cycle and the overall uh, cycles of the body of water to do its job. Okay, That's why the plants are there. And the plants, in return for having their grow bed do the filtration, get the nutrient uh, during the cycle conversion, and that's why they grow one of the reasons that they grow so well in that system. But when I have a, you know, a half-acre pond or quarter-acre pond like you talked about, uh, I can grow a certain amount of fish in there, and I'm going to be hard-pressed to overstock that. And if I do, it's probably not going to be the case that one pontoon boat is going to do enough to keep it clean. Right, So now I've got a totally different scenario. So it's about the ratio, how much grow bed to how many gallons of water. So it's not going to be an aquaponic system. It's more of an aquaculture system. There is some nutrient in the pond, but it may not be enough in and of itself to provide all the nutrients the plant needs. Now I might have to add a little bit of nutrient, or maybe I'm not using conventional grow beds. Maybe I'm using more of a, of a, of a container gardening scenario and what you're describing and some type of way that as the water is applied to the plants, it's not really filtered back into the lake. It's just used for irrigation. Maybe I'm creating some kind of wicking system where that lake water is just wicked up into the system and the system itself is providing for its own needs. But I, I think that if you really want to kind of get an understanding of what you're trying to do there, uh, Google Chinampa. And I'll provide a link on some stuff to some Chinampa stuff, uh, and is a, for historical context, uh, used a lot in, uh, in, in southern North America and Central America by indigenous cultures. And it was a highly, highly productive system, but it's done more with landform, uh, than it, than some kind of floating platform. It's more about creating almost a canal system with beds within the canal system. And you could literally then grow things that would overhang the canals. And then you could then take a boat and just go through the canal system and harvest without ever even stepping on, on the land. And you could do then things with waterfowl like ducks and bring ducks into that equation. And similar systems were built in the Far East, uh, very traditional systems. Uh, they didn't call them a chinampa there. They were called something else traditionally. But pretty much globally now, the system itself you're describing uh, is known as a chinampa. And, uh, again, it won't do what aquaponics does because of the volume of water versus the volume of the grow bed. Now, that doesn't mean we can't do something quite similar with an in-the-ground pond. It would probably just be scaled back in size a lot. For aquaponics to really do its thing, we actually have to have fish at a density that's higher than the pond could support without the added filtration and nutrient harvest of the plants. And then to keep from killing the fish due to the overstocking, we have to have enough plant grow bed and enough plant activity to take the toxins out to create a balance between the two ends of the systems. So we're intentionally creating an imbalance with the fish so that we can support an additional component of the system, which restores the balance. So if we don't have 
the, it's like a counterweight, right? If we have the right counterweight, the system falls to one end or the other, and then the whole thing falls in on itself. So the pond system you're describing is more an irrigation and a little bit of supplemental nutrient. It's not the same thing, but it's an interesting idea. And I'm thinking that you could almost build an artificial chinampa system on a small pond with multiple platforms like you're describing. And if you couldn't find enough, you know, holes of pontoon boats, Uh, you could build pontoons out of capped four-inch PVC pipe, uh, and that would be an interesting form of deep water aquaponics. But again, unless you have a sign—I mean, unless you're covering, you know, 50% of the water with these things, you, and then overstocking your fish as you build that system up, it's more just of an aquaculture versus an aquaponics. Uh, great question, great one to end the show on. Sorry about the rant on financial liars, but they really piss me off because they all give that same answer, and none of them take into account all of the things that I brought up for you today because they've been trained to think conventionally. And we see that across the board with the advice on spraying trees, trained to think conventionally. I had somebody recently ask me, I went down to the garden center and I was talking about wood mulch, and they said not to do it because it leaches nutrients. Leaching means it's gone. Wood doesn't leach nutrients, it takes it up, it holds it, and then it releases. It's called a freaking carbon nitrogen cycle. It's what it's supposed to do. But they're thinking about what can I get from it now versus what does it do for the system in the long term and in totality. And that's what the financial advisor is thinking. Yeah, the tax rates are lower now, and it would affect this way now based on everything that's now. But the totality of the system is, yeah, well, what's what's the political and economic climate going to be like in 2035 or 2045? Anybody says they know, including me, doesn't. I just know I don't trust the people that are in control, and their track record is not one of deserving of trust, So you usually leave your options open. So that's why I kind of tweaked out on that because it does piss me off. And I do consider most of these people financial liars. Not liar by intent, but liar by design. The system has trained them to lie because you can't tell the truth about something where you don't know the answer. These people speak like they know the answer and they don't. And that's true in, 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 in all walks of life today. People tell you what won't work about things they've never done or never tried and have no information on. Don't trust people like that. Trust yourself. Trust your instincts. Trust systemic knowledge. Uh, trust the fact that if you understand chemistry and biology, uh, then you can understand how systems like permaculture work. And if you understand the motivations of politicians and the dynamics of economics, you can understand how something like a Roth IRA gives you more options for choice in a dynamic, changing, fluid world that never stays the same than a conventional one does. It has rules that are so fixed and set uh, that they're subject to the whims of those that would love to have what you've taken so much effort into building. And with that, this has been another episode of the Survival Podcast with Jack Spierko, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way